listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging, by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to this special feature episode of the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers and my pronouns are she, her. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge that I am coming to you on Turrbal and Yagara land and would like to pay respects to the First Nations elders past and present, emerging leaders and people of this land. I recognise that this land was and always will be Aboriginal land and this land was never ceded. We are coming to you today via Zoom. So I've got three fabulous guests with me on Zoom and I actually have the absolute pleasure to be speaking with these three fabulous advocates and activists and researchers for a really important cause in relation to some significant changes that need to happen in the area of student placements within universities. We are looking at it from the perspective of um, social work and human services. However, we are aware and, and I'm sure my guests will speak to the ways that this is an issue way more broadly than that. So I'm here with Professor and Head of Social Work and Human Services at QUT, Christine Morley, uh, who is also a member of the Student Poverty Working Group from the Australian Council of Head of Schools Social Work Education. I am also here with Professor of Social Work at Western Sydney University and a member of the Poverty Working Group of the Australian Council of Heads of Schools Social Work Education, Linda Briskman. And student advocate Isaac Waddenberg, who is a social work student at UNSW and co-founder of activist group Students Against Placement Poverty, which he calls SAP. Is that right, Isaac? Yes, that's correct. Students Against Placement Poverty is a mouthful. It is. So um, Christine, Linda and Isaac have been involved in some really important research and activism supporting a shift towards more equitable practices in the context of field placement in social work and human service programs, which is gaining momentum in creating some much needed change within field education more broadly. So I would like to go to you first, Christine, I'm going to directly go to different people, but certainly if other people want to jump in, then there's space for that to happen. So Christine, it's really great to have you here. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Jean. I'm delighted to be here and have the opportunity to talk to you about this. And, and it's great to have you, Christine. And uh, people wouldn't be aware, but Christine and I work together and I'm really privileged to be able to learn and walk alongside Christine and the amazing things that she's doing within Social Work and Human Services. So Christine, can you just provide the listeners with some context around how this research that you've been doing has come about and what the role you have played in this research? Sure. So I suppose my area of research um, is critical social work and, and critical social work education specifically, and that has looked at field education from time to time. Poverty and inequality have long been a research uh, area for me and others I work with, like Philip Ablett. And then a few years ago, I started working with Lisa Hodge, who had been doing some work specifically looking at student poverty alongside placements. And we've collaborated on a number of projects together over the years. Um, and then alongside that, I became aware of the growing recognition, I guess, among the National Field Education Network and among the heads of schools of social work and the Australian Association of Social Workers, that there were, have been problems in field education, that um, field education in social work in its current form um, is unsustainable. And there are a number of drivers for that, um, including that there's been a proliferation of social work courses and, and programs and students, and that has resulted in a shortage of placements, especially placements with high quality learning experiences for students. And the sector is saying that they're burnt out and that they can't cope with the amount of placements that are required. And then, you know, COVID-19 pandemic came along and completely changed you know, how we thought about field education um, and, and lots of people in social work, uh, I think for many years, field educators, academics, you know, organisations, placement supervisors, peak bodies have been calling for a national conversation on social work, a national field education summit. And Linda took a key role in that and can probably speak more to that in a moment. But the research really came about because, you know, you can only have so many people at a summit at the table to discuss the issues. And so, you know, the survey that we sent out was a nationwide survey looking at the uh, experiences of practitioners, educators and students um, in relation to field education, and it was about reimagining field education specifically. So what kind of changes might be necessary to make social work field education more sustainable going forward? Um, you know, of the strategies that we uh, experimented with during COVID while there was a period of relaxed um, standards, which strategies worked best for practitioners, organisations and students, and what had students' uh, experiences of placement been generally. So they're some of the things that we covered. But the survey really wanted to, yeah, capture the voices of people, I guess, who couldn't participate in the summit on the day. So it was really about trying to be an inclusive mechanism to capture those voices of people who have opinions but, but couldn't be there. Wow. Sounds like there's a lot um, going on in the space. And it also sounds like there is, it's been a long time coming. Yes. Probably, I would say 10 years or, you know, so, I mean, field education has been flagged as being in crisis from, you know, since I've been involved in, field, in, in social work education, which is more than two decades now. So uh, this goes back a long time. And We've always known that student poverty is an issue um, and people will say, well, that's not new. That's best been part of the experience. But things have changed. We have different cohorts in social work. We have um, wider diversity groups represented and, um, and that's really 
fabulous, but we need to find ways to be able to support those diverse cohorts to participate and to succeed in higher education as well. I don't think we've come to terms with that. Plus, you know, alongside a cost of living crisis, a housing crisis, et cetera, we are really at a, a tipping point of crucially needing change and urgently needing that change to happen. And good motivation for what you're doing at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, I might go to you, Linda, if that's okay. Would you be able to tell us a bit about you and um, and how you became involved in this movement? Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity, Jean. It's, it's fabulous to be part of this podcast and hello to um, the others. Yeah, I mean, I guess like um, Christine, I also come from a critical social work perspective and also very much I see social work as being a human rights undertaking, even a radical undertaking and certainly um, as a political profession where we move beyond, you know, looking at our being inward looking to being outward looking. So most of my work has actually been around some of the most, um, what I see is some of the most significant issues facing society today. Asylum seeker rights is one example. Uh, the other one is you know, be involved in challenges to anti-racism, particularly Islamophobia. But field work has always been sort of lingering, a, a lingering concern for me, although it hasn't necessarily been the focus of my research. It's been part of my paid job at a university. I've been at many universities in Australia, um, in Victoria and, and, and New South Wales, and there's always been the problematising of field education always, always emerges. So what happened now, you know, as Christine said, it's just taken, you know, a hell of a long time for something to happen. I remember, um, you know, some of us that were raising it at the, the heads of schools group um, for many years. And not much was moving, and we'll talk about that a bit later, perhaps, when we're talking about where some of the resistance has, has come from. But suddenly, you know, there was a lot of momentum, as, as you mentioned earlier, Jean, um, a great, great momentum for change. And I think, you know, we've always known that, you know, field education is not sustainable, and, you know, I've been involved even longer than Christine, you can because of my age, I guess I've been around a lot longer. And I'd like to share here, Linda, that um, what we were talking about earlier prior to this, where I, as an undergrad more than 10 years ago, um, was just really inspired by a lecture that you had provided to our university when I was at university on the Sunshine Coast and how it, it certainly you've been doing this for a, a very long time, more than 10 years, I, I know, but also the contribution you've made has been fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jean. That's very kind of you. I, I certainly remember that um, occasion in a room, you know, full of people who were really committed to to social change. And yes, it's been about twenty years, and and I think there's a message in the work we do, including the work we're doing now around field education placements. Doesn't matter how long it takes, um, you, you just have to stick with it in the hope you can curl up in a corner and go to sleep, or you can keep trying, keep trying, as Saul Alinsky sort of says, you know, just just don't give up. So that's happened with um, field education. And I think what made me much more alert 
to what was going on. You know, I've been saying it's unsustainable, there's not enough placements, too many universities, you know, that, that sort of mantra. But it's Christine's work on poverty that really made me spring into action. And she's done a lot of work about poverty um, as such for, for a very long time. But when she started talking about student poverty and c- conducting research in that area and relaying some of the stories, that really resonated. And now being at Western Sydney University, you know, I can see that, you know, we, we work with a, a cohort of students, you know, from, um, you know, first in family, refugee families, students with disability, people that are particularly disadvantaged by the premises behind field education as it's now uh, constructed. So I I guess it's um, the inspiration of people like Christine that has really motivated me to join. But that's really inspired me and motivated uh, uh, me to keep going. And, and of course, students, seeing the student activism that's risen, that's been another, you know, push for us to just keep going. Students and academics working together with other groups, I think that's absolutely fantastic and I'm sure we're going to achieve results. And we'll be talking to Isaac too, who is a student that's doing some of that work. But firstly, I'd like to just acknowledge and recognise the significance of this. University um, students don't look like the assumption that we might make in relation to university students living at home, having their parents provide for them. Um, You've really highlighted the significance of the ways that the world looks differently now and um, the opportunities for Uh, diverse people from um, many different areas, uh, diversities and uh, cultures, uh, a lot of international students coming, a lot of students that might be single parents, a lot of students who, who are not in the position of wealth within the, the construction of universities, having those opportunities, but recognising that university systems need to change to accommodate that, to recognise that. And, uh, and I just wanted to highlight the significance of this is about poverty. It's not about privileged students, which takes me to bringing you into the conversation, Isaac. So thank you for being with us today. And can I just ask, how has this all been for you? And also two questions here. I I really want to know what this has been like for you personally, but also the work that you're doing with the students against placement poverty and your involvement in the development of that. I'd love to hear more about that as well, how you got involved, um, what's been happening in that space. Thank you. Yeah. Um, first, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a great platform for us to, as students, to express that, you know, we need change within the system. So placement, you know, naturally within itself has been a very difficult process for myself and my peers. I think the sort of general feeling amongst students, and I'm speaking from my own experience here, but also sharing the experiences that I've heard from many of my colleagues going through placement right now, is that we once again find ourselves in a position where we're under severe financial pressure. There's housing insecurity, food insecurity. There's photos of students lining up for free food 
at their local universities and food banks. And the current situation is it's not sustainable. I would argue we've reached the point where that sustainability, however short lived it was, it's run out. So I came to personally be involved in SAP during the University of Sydney NTEU strikes. Uh, so before it was Students Against Placement Poverty, it was the social work and education contingent to the University of Sydney staff strikes. And after those wrapped up, you know, we saw our teachers and our staff collectively fighting for better conditions for, I think, over 500 days. They went on strike something like nine times. It was very inspiring from that. And at that point, I think it became apparent to a lot of us that collective power is almost the last viable form of self-advocacy for issues like this. Yes. You know, we've, we've tried letter writing and having chats with our MPs and letting all the appropriate people know. And, you know, quite frankly, no one wants to listen to us. A lot of the current government has up until this point been ignoring all of our requests to meet and all of our open letters. We still haven't heard back. We've been trying to contact them for multiple months. But we want to make it clear that SAP is not about begging. We're not trying to highlight uh, just how abhorrent our conditions are on placement. But we're trying to let the government know that we're organized as students. We're not here to take no for an answer. And we genuinely cannot wait years for the accords process to deliver unsatisfactory results. Mm -hmm. So we're demanding that the government listens to us as a collective voice. We want to be consulted about reforms affecting us. And we want to be treated like people trying to get an education, not instruments of profit for the universities. And we're well aware that the government knows how bad the situation is for us. Um, they know how bad it is for everyone, but thousands of students in multiple campaigns, all these issues I've listed are currently demanding that the government talks to them. And we're crying out for change. You know, it's become apparent over the past modern industrial society that workers' rights, human rights, civil rights, any form of social justice has to come through collective action. So we're using our collective power as students to stand up, fight back, and let them know that we're not going to take this anymore. That's Amazing, uh, Isaac. And I imagine that many of the students that will be listening to this um, podcast will be really inspired by the work that you're doing. Sounds like you've been doing it for a long time. And I'm hoping that this uh, really important social action continues to have that momentum that, that you have created. And I know that this isn't something that you're doing on, on your own, but can you tell me a little bit more about, for you, why this was really important for you? Because I think in social work, uh, as an undergraduate student, we spend an overwhelming amount of our degree talking about advocating for social justice and working together uh, alongside clients and cooperatively with other agencies and other groups to make meaningful change that impacts people. I think it says in the uh, AASW Code of Ethics something about social workers will work to make systemic and policy change, you know, wherever there is need for it. And that, to me personally, has just been an extension of that. Uh, this whole campaign is is a sort of a, a radical social work action. It's mm -hmm. been, to me, an experience in like real practical social work that is advocating for uh, a marginalized group and trying to make change. Yeah, absolutely. And what about for some of your peers, your student colleagues that are working alongside you? Like what are, what are some of the, I know you can't speak directly for them, but what are your observations of how this has empowered or 
how their struggles have been and what's been brought forward in relation to that? I think this campaign comes at an interesting time for my peers. So if we roll back two years ago, we had the price of most university degrees doubled. Uh, Social work attempted to get some exclusions from that, but Unfortunately, many of the courses are not a part of the professional pathway, so we're still paying uh, almost $2,000 for a lot of our courses. So I think a lot of students, they've just had enough. In their personal lives, the rents are going up, the grocery bills are going up. They're either moving back into home or moving into rundown flats with half a dozen people. Or in their university lives, they're paying twice as many fees to go practically work for free for a thousand hours. And we have you know, students who are in other degrees now with differing requirements, but everyone feels the same. It's uh, It just doesn't seem right. And mm-hmm. we don't think, we can all clearly see that something's wrong here and someone needs to talk about this. Yes. And I'm really glad to see that social action is alive and it's hap- and it's happening through you and um, all of the people that have been involved in this. Um, social activism is so underestimated and I think this is a really great example for students that are coming through that this is a, a viable way for emancipatory change to happen and thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm also aware, Linda, that you were involved in the national summit that was commissioned by the Australian Council's uh, Council of Head of Schools, Social Work Education. Are you able to tell the listeners a little bit more about this and possibly some of the outcomes that came from the summit? Yeah, so I think the summit was a long time in coming about too. You know, we, we knew we had to do something. And we thought the Australian Council of Heads of Schools of Social Work, we'll just call it the council from now on, it's really a mouthful. Was, was a body. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> that we should have been behind this because they represent, you know, senior staff from all universities with social work programs in the whole of Australia. So we'd had these discussions and, you know, the standards for, you know, social work education were revised, you know, they they came and went. But field work was never really ruggedly, you know, reinvented or reimagined as we are talking about. So what actually became, well, for me, um, the prompt came one day, it was an informal lunch. Um, A few of us were having at Western Sydney University with the president of the ASW, Vittorio Cintio. What he said resonated with me. He said, you know, let's have a, why don't we have a summit, a national summit on uh, field education? So that's to me seemed like a fantastic idea and I talked to others about it and then then COVID came. And uh, so everything, everything was on hold, as, as we know, during COVID. So again, you know, time passed and then this idea was revived. And I think Part of the the impetus for that revival was hearing from students. There were campaigns emerging from students, my university, Christine's university, other universities like UNSW, and we thought, wow, the time is really right. We just can't let it go any longer. We're, we're hearing these stories, um, and, and we've got we've got to have them heard um, at a national level in in something more strident. So we invited a hundred people to the summit. Uh, we had limited space, and uh, we were very careful in, in those invitations to make sure all groups were represented that really had a say. So there were a variety of organisations, and as well as that, people speaking were students, 
um, agencies that took students on field education and academics and field educators. And the, the, the most heart-wrenching of stories, I, I think everybody in the room and some on Zoom were really touched by what they heard, moved by what they heard and distressed by what they heard about student poverty. Mm-hmm. They were really the, the, the stars of the event, if I can put it that way. So I think we left there feeling pretty good. We felt we'd really achieved something quite remarkable in some ways. And because we also had Christine's survey um, as uh, to complement the summit or the summit to complement the survey, whichever way we look at it, we had, we had even more voices. I know Christine will be talking about the survey in a little while. But there was absolute unanimity that things had to change. Um, so that's really what came out of it, a push for reimagining. And we haven't stood still um, since the summit. You know, we, we've written a, a report uh, of what came out of it. Uh, we've made... Um, a submission um, which the president of the council uh, sent off to the Australian Universities Accord. Um, people like Christine and Lisa Hodge have been, you know, media moguls really and doing a lot of work. So the summit and the survey together, I think, has really been an incredible driver for change and hand in hand with student activism on the topic. Mm-hmm. And certainly part of the the beginning of the momentum, I guess, um, that is happening now, which I'm really excited about. Can I just ask, Linda, in relation to those stories that were told, were those stories told from students in the summit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had students who spoke about their, their experiences. And that's not the only forum. Um, sure. Isaac might mention, you know, the, the launch recently of, of his campaign and, you know, we, we heard student stories in and students are speaking to the media and I think these mm-hmm. stories, the lived experience is what is going to be quite instrumental in bringing about change. I mean, governments love hard evidence and, and, and data and I think the surveys achieve that, although that, of course, in, incorporated a lot of stories but I think as social workers, you know, narrative and storytelling is really very close to our hearts in what, in, in what we do. Absolutely. And, and ensuring that students' voices are heard within this action that's happening is so profound. I recently listened to the Triple J episode that Christine and Isaac uh, were featured on and uh, listening to some of the messages that were coming through while that conversation was being had, was really profound to hear the the stories and the voices of the students who have been impacted by that. I might come back to you, Christine, if you can tell us a little bit more about the research. So you have done this nationwide survey, nearly 1,200 social workers with over 700 students. What did students tell you or what did the research say um, that's significant to the ways that change needs to happen? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jean. The survey told us a lot, actually, and students had a lot to say. Overall, the majority of all the voices who participated, students, educators and practitioners, were overwhelmingly supportive of the changes that we proposed in the survey. And those were things like reducing placement hours, paying students for placement, having greater flexibility around students doing placements in their workplace, you know, increased options for simulation, uh, looking at different ways to conceptualise field education, um, even considering whether placements should be, you know, optional rather than compulsory. Um, so, you know, there were lots of options that were canvassed, I guess. Also, interestingly, like 82% of educators who responded indicated that they'd had difficulty placing students in the last five years. So the shortage placement is real. We now have evidence for that. And nearly all of half of the practitioners who responded indicated that their organisation had had to decline taking students in the last five years. And this was largely due to lack of staff or lack of physical space to host students um, and also due to COVID. So, you know, we have this sustainability problem quite separate from the poverty problem. Um, the poverty problem, though, is urgent and students most specifically spoke about that. So nearly a, a lot of the students told us that they had to give up paid work to do placement because of the way placements are structured and that was forcing them into poverty, as Isaac just spoke about. More than 60% had lost three quarters of their wage um, and 25% had lost their entire regular income um, in order to do placement. So students are telling us that they're feeling exploited, they're regularly used to fill labour shortages in organisations that are not adequately funded or adequately staffed. Students, um, some students are reporting losing tens of thousands of dollars in wages um, while they're doing a placement. And I see the unions have done some number crunching around this and estimate that placements represent about $21,000 in, in lost wages. 96% of students actually indicated that they didn't have money for food, 96%, which is just, it's just unacceptable. Um, students are making decisions about rationing petrol to go to placement or choosing between petrol and food. They're disconnecting their phones, their internets, because they can't afford the bills. They've had to give up rental properties, which, you know, are very competitive and few and far between, to go and live with their parents, even if they're mature age students with their own children. So some talked about how scary it is to lose their independence. Others talked about going into massive debt, maxing out their credit cards or defaulting on loans, etc. And then there's the cost of placement as well. Like placements do cost money for students. In social work, we don't have uniforms, but many students um, in other disciplines have indicated that that's an issue um, parking can cost money I, you know one field educator said that you know students have to pay $80 a week for parking to go to placement and then do unpaid work and there's the cost of either public transport or petrol and those can be substantial over a long period of time and then if you've got students and there is encouragement to have students do placement in rural remote areas but the costs just uh, spiral out of control when they do that and I was very pleased to see that the Palaszczuk government has just come out and approved $5,000 bursaries for nursing and midwifery students but that will help with relocation it doesn't really address the issue of unpaid work um, and certainly we would like to see that expanded beyond just nursing and, and midwifery. But yeah, I guess there's this other cohort of students too, who I should mention, who simply can't afford not to work while they're on placement in order to make ends meet. So they're telling us things like they're working 60, sometimes 80 hours a week, doing things like cleaning rooms before they go to placement, doing night fill in supermarkets or Uber driving, basically just picking up whatever kinds of work that they can. And they're telling us that they're absolutely exhausted and basically 
basically just scraping themselves through the whole place and experience without really being able to learn much, you know, whilst they're working those really excessive hours. And as you know, both poverty and excessive work hours have incredible detrimental impacts for people's mental health and their learning where students cannot concentrate if they're hungry or if they're worried about being evicted from their house because they can't afford their rent. A number of students mentioned mm-hmm. fact that they're burnt out, you know, before they even have an opportunity to graduate and commence paid work in the chosen profession. So, and nearly 80% had actually indicated that they knew of students who had had to defer their studies or to drop out completely, which is pretty alarming when we think about the workforce shortages and the sustainability issues of the profession as well. For sure. Uh, That point that you made, Christine, about students not having the capacity to learn, like so detrimental to, to the field, you know? Yeah. And one of the, you know, if they're is resistance, I know Linda will will talk about this, but resistance to modifying standards comes with, well, standards will be lessened. But if the standards that we have result in students not being able to learn, then that's an issue. One of the other things that I should note that came up is that students are also, you know, when they're trapped in poverty, they're potentially trapped into violent situations as well while they're undertaking their placement and, you know, holding work on time. So there's multiple ways that the social justice issues converge to work against students and to work against this notion that, you know, unpaid labour is the best way to learn. Yeah, I can really resonate as someone who does um, have placement students that I work with directly and for the last few semesters are the things that I've noticed. Like in my experience of working with students, I do non-direct um, placements, but many of the students are experiencing these troubles. And I've had students with a range of different complexities, including students with full-time carer responsibilities, students who are pregnant, students living with cancer. Uh, and when you're living with cancer, you really need to prioritise what's important for you. And for that particular student, they were working, they were doing treatment, they weren't even going to do placement. And it wasn't until I had a conversation and said, how about we do it in a more flexible way so that you don't have to have a semester off because you're doing treatment. And it meant it took longer, but that flexibility is really required because for that person, what's the point of continuing to do this if there's not that flexibility. So really important. I've also had students that are living with significant disability, some with significant mental health vulnerabilities who should be able to have the opportunity to share and be part of and contribute in the ways that they want to in the field um, to support other people who have had those, have those vulnerabilities as well. Um, I've currently got three students who are all working full-time and completing their non-direct research placements with me across different projects. Although having non-direct placements have been great to provide flexibility, all students have had to extend their placement completion time. This impacts on their course progression. Even with the flexibility, all three have had times where their physical and emotional health have suffered um, due to the pressures and stress of trying to hold it all together. You know, I've got one student at the moment who works in the field, is a a disability worker uh, with the NDIS, um, but works in private practice. Now for that person to lose time um, and to have to negotiate the hours that they work and can't be flexible in the ways that they work, that particular student is losing clients. And then that means she can't eat. 
and that causes emotional stress, which really does impact on that person's learning. And and these are situations that are happening now. It's not happened in COVID when it was really bad. It's all happening all now. So I'm in with you in relation to the importance and the significance of this research and what it can do for change. Isaac, I wanted to jump to you because I know that some of these um, stories would reflect your own experience. And I'm aware that you don't want it to just be about the sad story, but it's also an important story. Um, Did you want to share a little bit about that? in relation to these are stories that we keep hearing, but if it's just telling the stories and nothing happening, I imagine you would be thinking, what's the point? Did you want to speak to that? So I'll I'll explain my own personal situation first, and I'll then elaborate on some other things my peers have told me, of course, anonymously. But from my own experience, I had to actually pause paid work completely uh, as a result of my placement. So that left me every week for every fortnight, give or take about $1,500 out of pocket. During this period, my rent has increased by $160 a fortnight. My youth allowance, which is what is now my main source of income, has increased by $11 a fortnight. So that disparity in and of itself has naturally put me in quite a, it's put me under a lot of financial stress uh, and insecurity. You know, I'm grateful. I have the ability to live with my partner so we can split some of our bills. But even then, we still sit comfortably below the poverty line. It's it's no way to live. Not at all. Yeah. And this movement comes at a time where we've experienced 50 years of neoliberal policymaking just absolutely decimating the ability for people to live on welfare while they're undertaking study. Free university is gone. Cheap housing is gone. Uh, God knows cheap food is gone. So it's just sort of, you know, a lot of students are very, you know, disparaging of the current situation and they feel as though taking too collective action is really the only option they have left. And the deregulation of the market in relation to that means there's no protection. Yes, neoliberalism has a lot to answer for. Absolutely. So with all of this and knowing all of this, can I ask Christine, what can be done to change this? Like what are some of the things, the solutions that you're contemplating in relation to this? Yeah, sure, Jean. So there's there's a few things that we could do, you know, and if we wanted to change this for a lot of students tomorrow, then the ASW could introduce greater flexibility flexibility um, to the standards, changing that rule that students cannot undertake a placement in their existing role or under their current supervisor. So, I mean, that's a situation where if you had a child safety placement, for example, that a student could do, and it's the same placement, but they haven't worked in child safety, then that placement would be adequate for them. But if they've had two years extra experience in that same role, then that placement is not available for them and they need to potentially resign from their paid placement in order to go into unpaid work. That just doesn't make any sense. I agree. And we now have the data to support that students who were able to do a placement in their existing workplace um, during COVID while the standards were relaxed around that experienced actually deeper learning, working with an external social work supervisor, you know, with a social work lens. So there, there is no reason why we shouldn't change that today, you know, and that would make a very big difference for a lot of students who who cannot qualify as social workers while they're working in the field or who have to go into poverty in order to do 
it's it's kind of counterintuitive isn't it that uh, you would want people to not be in a field um, that gives them the ethical practice that we want we want our practitioners to have social work values recognize those ethics but them not being able to practice those linking that theory and practice in relation to that it doesn't make any sense because it would be taking them out of that and then they might be still practicing but not with that linking of their critical analysis and critical reflection to support them in their practice. I'll come back to you, Christine, but Isaac, did you want to make a point about that? Uh, yes, I just wanted to add on to that from a student perspective that it feels very counterintuitive to social work values that in order to complete your placement, you have to have a certain level of financial standing uh, and that accreditation with the AASW will significantly impact your ability to find well-paying jobs within the social work industry. A lot of jobs, I believe, require you to be accredited with the AASW, which means you have to do your thousand hours. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're effectively telling students, if you're poor, if you're disadvantaged, if you're from a lower socioeconomic background, don't come to social work. This isn't the field for you. Yeah. And that is inherently against every single uh, value this profession has ever stood for. Mm, thanks for adding that. Christine? Yeah, just in relation to Isaac's comment there, I, I do think that placements, you know, we are in a situation now where only the wealthy are going to be able to afford to complete professional degrees. That's what placement means. So there is, you know, our Australian higher education system is becoming in an exclusion space and we do need to acknowledge that. Just in relation to the, you know, people doing their placements in their existing workplace, for those students who have had to resign from their positions in order to do unpaid placements, what we know from those students also is that, you know, they often go back to worse positions. So they might have had to give up an ongoing paid position, for example, and then have to go back to accept a contract type role or a casual type role so or, or not be able to find work again at all so it's not just a matter of oh well you take off time for placement and then you go back to to your role like that's not necessarily what's happening in fact students are telling us that they are being disadvantaged in an ongoing way um, and if they do manage to find work again in between the placement then of course they, they have to get ready to resign again in order to to go and do another unpaid placement which is not very appealing to employers so there are real disadvantages. I'm also aware you just asked me what some of the solutions are. Can I speak? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that would be great. To those, in addition to sort of greater flexibility around work-based placements, we could also reduce the number of hours that are required. There is negligible evidence to support the 1,000 hours that we currently have. And we do have evidence, in fact, that students can demonstrate the learning outcomes from their placements when those placements are reduced by up to 20%, as many of them were during the COVID-19 pandemic with the revised standards. We could also introduce greater recognition of prior learning for students who come to social work studies who already have significant experience in the field, and that would make a difference about the, the impostive hours. So that's just at the level of professional body and the standards, yes. um, and that doesn't require extra resources. But in terms of federal government, we do need an investment, I think, into the practitioners of the future by the federal government. We pay tradies to do apprenticeships, um, and we pay police and firefighters to do training. But when we call it education at universities, that can be lawfully unpaid. So maybe we need a change in legislation 
to talk about social workers doing training. And I think that has problems at some level when we think because education is far more than training, in fact. But when it can be justified as not being paid, that's an unethical problem that needs to be um, sorted. We do need payment for apprenticeship type models to be extended to vital professions, particularly when we have workforce shortages for those professions. So my preferred model would be an apprenticeship type model. The government to pay organisations who host student placements as an incentive, but also, and then those placement organisations would then pay students an apprenticeship wage, which would be essentially funded by government for their placement hours. So that would solve a number of problems in terms of increasing the capacity of those organisations that are already struggling with resources to offer their services. Um, it would also result in higher quality placement offerings, given that the paid work would be taken more seriously and address the placement shortage issue, which is chronic, um, as I mentioned before, as well as addressing this crucial issue of student poverty. So that would be my preferred model, certainly. Yeah. And I have to ask, Christine, how would you see the federal government being able to afford to pay students to do placement? Yeah, and I, I think we can afford to pay. I think it's about what we choose to prioritise. Last time I checked, the higher education budget is less than half a percent. So less, you know, 0.46% of GDP, to wow. be precise. And that has been declining since 2018. So we're talking a very, very small amount. Like this has not been a priority for successive governments and we've now got, you know, a majorly unfunded problematic system. So we do need an injection of funding into higher education, but certainly some of that should be used to support the professional development of, of these practitioners. According to the United Nations, Australia is, I think, the 12th or 13th richest country in the world. So we can certainly afford this. We have a very enormous capacity for a taxation base if we just choose to tax corporate organisations and to tax the rich. Um, and rather than being seen as a cost, we need to understand that this is an opportunity to invest in practitioners of the future, for which there are fairly catastrophic workforce shortages in the past if we don't do something yeah, and that's a really good explication or explanation of the ways that it's easy for when people don't have that information to be able to think we can't afford it because of those discourses. Yeah, and I would just say we do have the university's accord that the council did a submission to and the research informed. And so that's an opportunity, that accord, to address issues in higher education in a way that doesn't produce further inequality and hardship and to deeply consider the nexus between universities and service providers and accreditation bodies and students and how we can all best work together to ensure that we have a high quality workforce for the future and that that workforce is actually made up of diverse groups rather than just an elite few students who can afford or to study without working. Yeah so can you just explain the university accord just a little bit more for the listeners? So they know what that means? In, in short, it's just a review of higher education. Okay. And, and one of and, and it has several key priorities, but one of those key priorities is how do we support equity groups to successfully participate in yep. higher education? You know, right. and so working integrated learning, I understand, is part of the agenda. And while that remains part of the agenda, I think Linda said, where there's a will, there's a way. Yep, wonderful. Linda, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, just uh, following on to what um, Christine explained about the accord, there is an interim report coming out this month and there will be more opportunities to uh, respond to that interim report. So we're hoping that uh, field education and poverty 
um, is somewhere within that agenda. But we need to be really watchful of the opportunity to speak again. Fantastic. So there's definitely a lot of really good stuff going on in that in that space. And it's so good to hear. Um, Linda, I might come to you. Christine mentioned earlier about the resistance. And look, I imagine that there has been some pushback on this. So in your experience, how much resistance exists for changes to field education requirements, particularly ensuring that placements are paid? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, there's always been resistance to changing um, field education requirements. And even though I think that is lessening, um, it still exists. I mean, some people just, um, if I can put it bluntly, inherently resistant to to change, you know, much more conservative uh, members of of the social work profession. Some, as uh, Christine says, you know, they see it as, you know, a lessening of standards, which, you know, we can, of course, um, speak back to and and argue against. Um, Some people, you mentioned flexibility that that you worked on, Jean. Not everybody's willing to work towards, it's a lot of work uh, to try and within the current requirements and be flexible. You know, field educators, you know, are up against a lot themselves. So there's a whole lot of reasons uh, for the resistance, but I think the the point that we need need to make is how do we overcome the resistance? And I think that's what we're all in our little own little silos and collectively, as Isaac says, you know, the importance of working collectively is what we are all trying to a- achieve now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important. You know, we've got some practical ideas. Uh, both Isaac and Christine and, and you too, Jean, have, have spoken about some of the specifics that could change. And I think we can't fault those ideas. You know, we've got those ideas and that's what we're working towards, particularly ending unpaid placements or paying for placements. But on top of that, you know, the question of values comes in. I mean, every social worker should subscribe to social work values and ethics. And even be, we, we're not going to be able to smash neoliberalism as part of it as much as we'd like to. You know, that's not going to happen, certainly not in my generation. Um, but there's one other aspect that I think we need to consider. I mean, universities in Australia and lots of organisations and government have subscribed to the Sustainable Development Goals. And although they're really directed at the least advantaged countries and not wealthy countries like Australia, I think we've got to say that the Sustainable Development Goals should apply to us. And, you know, the first goal is to end poverty. And we won't be able to end global poverty, but we can ease the poverty of students in Australia. The next thing I think, and again, it's part of the idea of the collective, and we're we're starting to do that. Um, Isaac's group's doing it, and there needs to be more work done is to not see it as a social work issue, because I know the accord will see it much more broadly too. So we know that uh, teachers and and nurses and various other groups have got similar concerns. Some Mm. of them are starting to speak up and collectivise and people are talking to the media. And I think unions are coming on side. There needs to be more work done there. So we need to, this isn't a campaign that we can stop now, say we've got all our ideas, this is what should happen. Now we've got to work collectively on how to make it happen. Yes. And that's what we need to turn our attention to right now. 
And although it's a lot of work, if we're working from our social justice aims and espousing emancipatory practice, it's 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 work that we need to do. It's important. Absolutely. Work. And we're all passionate about it. And yes. I think that's the one thing about social work. You know, we, we bring our passions, we bring our outrage, we bring our compassion. You know, there's nothing wrong with emotion. We, we bring who we are and what we believe and what our worldviews are uh, to, to what we do. Yes. We don't just do it as a job. We live it. Yeah. It's wonderful. I want to come to you, Christine. Did you want to share anything about the resistance? Yeah, look, in relation to the resistance, I mean, there was very little opposition to pay placements registered in the survey. So I just wanted to make that comment. Unequivocally, you know, pretty much unequivocally, people were supportive of pay placements. Um, in terms of standards, again, people were supportive of change, but there was more resistance to the standards. There are some kind of dichotomous views, I think, hanging around like, but it's learning, not unpaid work. And the thing is, you know, that I wanted to, to call out about that is that it's both, you know, it's it's learning and it's unpaid work. And so those things aren't mutually exclusive. And so, you know, I know in my role as a professor, I learn something every day and I still get paid. And so those things shouldn't be seen as in opposition or tension. Some of the people, you know, when I've been on Talkback Radio who have called in with resistance to paid placements, for example, have had, I think, misunderstandings about it, saying things like, well, you know, students, they can't be paid because, you know, they won't be supervised and then, you know, they do their degrees and they're going to come out and apply for CEO roles. That's what somebody said. And it's like, interesting, yeah. And it's it's like, well, you know, I don't know who said anything about students not being supervised. And again, supervision is not <laughs> exclusive from payment. So we can, we can both pay students as apprentices and we can supervise them, which is what happens in, in normal apprenticeship models. So I think that that's, you know, some there are some misconceptions in part of the resistance as well. There are the outliers in social work who don't re reflect the values. So, you know, there were very few, but some statements saying, well, we all had to do it. And yes, it's hard, but you just have to suck it up. And those people might have done placements, I don't know, a long time ago. Things have changed and it's just not consistent with the social justice values. Other, you know, sometimes placement providers in talking about a reduction of hours might things say things like, well, it's about the return that we get basically, you know, versus the investment, um, meaning that if we invest time in supervision in placements, then we expect by the end of that placement that, you know, that 500 hours is where we're getting the most bang for our buck in terms of our investment. And again, I just don't think that we want to reduce an educational transaction to what a cost, you know, versus value return proposition is. That doesn't sound like very consistent with the values that we all espouse as social workers. So I think we do need a social justice lens over this. And in terms of change, I would say that I think it is inevitable. There are so many things you know, bubbling from different quarters and everybody has either done a placement or knows somebody who has suffered in a placement. And so this is an issue that affects a very, very broad amount of people in society that I think governments won't simply be able to ignore. Thank you. Yeah, so really bringing the issue to transparency really makes it clear that some of the assumptions that are being made are um, uh, sort of 
unintelligible, I guess you could say, uh, in relation to that and really draws on our conditioning around capitalism and the ways that that can often be prioritised in these discussions, you know. Look, I'm aware of time and I'm aware I would love to come back to Isaac if I can in relation to how could students get involved if they want to be part of this? And then I'll come to you, Linda, in relation to how could other people, practitioners, organisations get involved? So Isaac, just coming to you first, how can students become part of this and support this? So there, there's so many different ways to get involved, but I'm, I'm just going to highlight some uh, directly related to our campaign yeah, so we have our Facebook page, Students Against Placement Poverty. Uh, on that page, you will see our open letter you can sign, uh, which will allow us to get in touch with you if you're interested in organizing further. We also have open organizing meetings every fortnight uh, on Zoom. So this isn't specifically for students. Anyone who wants to help with our campaign is more than welcome to join. We also have an Instagram, which is SAP, S-A-P-P underscore and placement poverty. And uh, I'd say, last but not least, send an email to Jason Clare and let him know you're not happy about the current situation and you're demanding reform. Uh, if I could say just one thing to students, don't get disheartened, get organized. Thank you. Thank you for that. And we'll make sure that they are on our page as well, those, those ways that people can get involved. So we'll make sure that we've got those readily available to people. Thanks, Isaac. So coming back to you, Linda, what are your Thanks. thoughts? I think we're, you know, at the stage now where we really have to move on and we have to bring people on board. We've got a lot of people. I mean, um, we don't want to be pessimistic because a lot of people have come on board as far as academics are concerned through the summit, through the survey, through our day-to-day -day work, through being readers of the media for signing up to student campaigns. But I think it also takes some special skills and abilities. We've got certain sets of these. We also have our day jobs. And I think we're looking at next perhaps is some resources that can go into furthering the campaign and bringing the diversity of groups together uh, that are needed to bring about change. And we've identified some and they're probably more. So we're hoping, um, hoping that we might be able to raise some funds to have somebody, we thought initially of a lobbyist, but our advice is perhaps it's better to get a community organiser on board that can bring groups together that can help us advocate so we can have a coordinated campaign. It doesn't mean that we can't keep doing stuff in our own groups and working individually in our own collectives, but something there's something powerful, I think, of bringing it together in a more holistic way. And it does take, it will take a little bit of money uh, to help push that along. Yeah. And I totally agree with you, Linda. Yeah. Having those opportunities to do stuff in our own local, but also to bring that all together. When you when you say having money to put that together, what ideas do you have about how that could happen? Well, I think as social workers and as social work researchers too, we're used to doing stuff without much money we're pretty good at that which we shouldn't um, be <laughs> well, we shouldn't be we're, but we're not private consultants you know who, who who can you know garner huge amounts of money so you know we're going to eventually put up a proposal to the um, heads of schools group 
you know, maybe we'll see if groups from other disciplines would be prepared to do the same. We're just at an early stage of trying to work out the best way uh, to go about this. Fantastic. Any ideas from anybody listening? Much appreciated. Yeah, that's right. Yes, we'll put it out there. Um, Christina, was there anything you wanted to add to that in relation to people getting involved? Oh, no, just, I mean, as final comments, I just think, you know, we need to, as you pointed out earlier, Jean, stop assuming that all university students have wealthy parents who can fund their studies because they don't. And we need to stop pretending that free labour is the best way for students to learn. Uh, It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you to you all. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Christine. I really appreciate all the work that you are doing. And um, yeah, really appreciate the time that you've spent to be sharing this information with the listeners. And yeah, have a fabulous rest of your day. Thanks, Jane. Thank you for having us on. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.